Good morning again, guys. It's good to see you. It still feels like I've been very absent just because of my trip for a couple weeks out of country and, and then being gone this week up at camp with the kids. So um, I just wanted to share with you guys super briefly as you turn to Mark chapter 9 this morning. That's where we're going to be studying. So find Mark chapter 9 in your Bible. We'll be spending our time there. As you turn there, I just wanted to let you guys know the Lord did some really awesome things up at camp this week. And we kind of did a, a, a highlight thing, like what was the one thing you're walking away uh, from camp with the last night in the high school guy's cabin, which I was a cabin counselor for. And so I was thinking this morning, like, what's the one thing that, like, I wanted, I would want to share with the body of so many things. And I know that BJ will probably be talking about this as he teaches in coming weeks and um, just all the amazing things that the Lord did. But there was something about the worship at camp this year that by the end of camp, um, the, the teens were out singing me. That doesn't happen very often because I got a big mouth. Um, but they were singing up and over the top of me to the point where I couldn't hear my own voice in the midst of them by the last night there. Um, and I got to tell you, to see a group of high school dudes who are way too cool, um, absolutely abandoning any thought of how they were perceived by those around them and worshiping the Lord with all of their hearts. I promised myself I wouldn't cry. Um, you can't make that up. You can't contrive that. You can't force that. I've worked with a lot of young people over my years, and, and I'll tell you this, the group that it's hardest to get to open up their hearts and be vulnerable is high school dudes. And these guys were singing their guts out. I walked away from camp remembering <clears throat> that this is the next generation. Watching these kids worship the Lord, study their Bibles, this is the next generation. And so many times we get caught up in the news and the media we get caught up in looking around us and all we see is negative, all we see is violence. And I got to stand in a place with 40 teens and watch them worship Jesus and seek after him and be ministered to. And it just reminded me that we need to remember to be revolutionaries of optimism. That Jesus is going to continue to do his work in this world through his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Satan is not going to win. We need to be pouring into the next generation because they are the ones who are going to carry the torch and God is faithful and his Holy Spirit is with them and that excites me. And it should excite you too. That was your free sermon. Now here's the one you paid for. <laughs> I want to read this morning a passage of scripture just kind of leading us up into where we are. And typically we'll read a scripture passage to start off our time that's related to and kind of built around the text we're going to study. But this morning I'm just going to read to you our text from last week. So if you're at Mark chapter 9, I'm just going to be reading the text before. And I'm going to begin in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8 and read down through verse 38. And this is what happened leading up to the events that we're going to study this morning. It says, then he, meaning Jesus, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, 
Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the words of our Lord. The late theologian Adam Clark said this, If Jesus had come into the world as a mighty and opulent man, Clothed with earthly glories and honors, he would have had a multitude of partisans, and most of them hypocrites. If if them's a lot of big words for you, opulent means rich, partisans means people who were on his side, who were strongly supporting him. So think about it this way, if Jesus had come to this world as a mighty and rich man, he probably would have had a lot of support. And most of them would have been hypocrites because they were supporting him for the wrong reasons. When you invite people to join you on a quest and you're well off and you have lots for them to gain, you're going to gather a large group of people to follow you. But when you invite people to join you on death row, it's a very special person that's going to join you in that place. You're not going to draw the dispassionate followers. You're going to call true believers into action. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Make no mistake, when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross in a Roman world, he's inviting them to join him in his suffering and his death. To those who are willing to lose their life for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, he will then show them his glory. He'll show them the glory that he has prepared for them to be with him. And Jesus prayed this over all the generations of the church in John 17, 24, when he said, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. We will see the glory of Jesus in his kingdom. That's why we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying for the glory of God to descend from the heavens and be shown here, to be revealed here. And right now his church is to reflect that glory of God as we are his body and his ambassadors. But we're praying for Jesus to return and rule here as he does in heaven. And Jesus promises to some of those present here in the beginning of Mark chapter nine, having said what we just read, he promises them, some of them, that they won't need to depart from this life to see his glory, that they're going to see it before they die. That they'll see it in their lifetimes. And as Jesus says this in verse one, it sets up what's to follow on the Mount of Transfiguration. That some of these present namely Peter, James, and John, are going to see something very special about Jesus on the mountain. So let's look at our text for this morning, beginning in Mark chapter 9, with those thoughts in our mind kind of bouncing around like ping pong balls. At least that's what I feel like my brain's doing most of the time. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 says this. Then he said to them, 
Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. I really think that when Mark wrote that, he's like, this will get a chuckle. He's getting it from Peter, too. Verse 7, a cloud appeared, overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is, is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. An amazing story, and it all connects to not just this text in and of itself, but the last couple of chapters, the conversations that Jesus has had with his disciples and that he's had with the scribes and the Pharisees, all plays into this. And for more on that, see our YouTube archive. But if you have read the Gospel of Mark, you know that there's been a lot that's led up to this point, that the scribes and Pharisees have challenged Jesus, they've rejected Jesus. Jesus has even left off talking to them or giving them signs anymore because they keep trying to find a way to accuse him. And the disciples have continued to misunderstand Jesus. They've continued to misunderstand things he said, things he's done, why he's done them, yet he keeps them close and he keeps walking with them. I was blown away this week, and this is just a fun fact for you. I was blown away this week as I was preparing this message that the Eastern and Western church traditions that go way back have a day that they celebrate the transfiguration. There's an actual church holiday in history for the transfiguration. Do you know what day it lands on? Today, August 6th. Now, I would love to look at you and go, impeccable planning. No, like... I had no clue until I was reading about it in preparation for the study. I was like, oh, look at that. Well, that's wild. And, you know, if you're like me, you know, like God doesn't do dinks. but I was just wondering, like, why did this happen? That's coincidences. I, I, don't, I don't know why this happened, and, and this is like a church traditional thing that they celebrate the transfiguration. The history of the church would celebrate it on August 6th as well. What's interesting about the tradition, as I read more about it, is that it, it was even named after Mount Tabor, which they would imply was the mountain that Jesus took his disciples up on for the transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John up there. But it's interesting because if you look at Mount Tabor and its location, I don't think it makes a lot of sense, and many theologians would agree with me. Because of elevation, it's not a very high. It's more of a hill than a mountain. Its location in the south is far away from Caesarea Philippi, which is where they were prior. And at this time period, there was a fortress there. So there's some factors in play that don't really lean towards it. If you're like, I like to follow a lot of church tradition, I would look at that one and push against it and say this is probably Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in the region in the north, close to where they were at 9,200 feet elevation. 
It's interesting. I was talking to our group that's going to Israel this year, and I, and I said, you know, it's fascinating because in the land of Israel, you're going to experience a lot of things. And I said, you literally will experience being up near Mount Hermon at 9,000 feet, and you'll also be at the lowest place on earth down at the Dead Sea. It's amazing just the changes and the differences that you can experience in one region. I think that helps us understand what's really going on here. And if you picture a high mountain, Mount Hermon is really what you're thinking of in the land of Israel. That's the setting, but it's not the point. The point of this text and what it draws our attention to is the revelation of Christ's glory and that it's so striking. Mark and Luke use some of the same descriptives in their gospels. Matthew says it this way, Jesus's face shone like the sun. I don't know if you've looked at the sun recently. Mom and dad used to tell, that, uh, tell us that was really bad. Um, but Jesus's clothes were illuminated because he was physically shining so brightly. And Matthew clues us in and says that his face was like looking at the sun. That's pretty bright. It's exploding out of him. And it's important that with all that Jesus has said in the last chapter, that the disciples were struggling to grasp, that he was going to die and be raised again from the dead, and Peter gets rebuked for satanic thought, and then Jesus gives a call to them to follow him on to death row. Here Jesus reveals the beauty of his glory. Here in this moment, he reveals the beauty of his glory and he shows his authority to make the statements that he's already made. And note this, the word transfigured describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. It's a change on the outside that comes from within. It's not a light shining on you, it's light coming out of you. The source lay within. It's the opposite of a masquerade, which is an outward change that doesn't come from within. It's the opposite of putting something on you to look like something you're not. And that's why masquerading hypocritical demands of the law by the Pharisees, Jesus is the exact opposite of fleshy, broken human religion, which tells you that you should look the part or fake it till you make it, if you will. Jesus is the opposite. Jesus shines from the inside out. And this wasn't a new miracle. David Guzik said it this way. I love what he has to say about this passage. He says, this was not a new miracle, but the temporary pause of an ongoing miracle. The real miracle was that Jesus, most of the time, could keep from displaying his glory. One of the greatest miracles that Jesus did in his physical life was the consistent and continual veiling of his glory. He veiled it in humanity. Even using the terminology, refusing almost exclusively to call himself Messiah by calling himself exclusively Son of Man. He drawed attention to his humanity. And here Jesus is doing this, this unleashing of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as he's transfigured, as he's beginning to shine in this way, he gets a couple guests. These would be pretty exciting people for young Jewish boys to see. Well, for me too. I'd be really stoked if they showed up. Like if Elijah and Moses wanted to show up this morning and sit in front row, I'd be like, oh, hi guys. Do you want to teach? Anyway, Elijah appeared to them, it says in verse four with Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. And Peter don't you love Peter? 
You ever been that guy? You're like, Mike, you are that guy. I know, that's why I love Peter. Peter just shows us like, eh. right? Let's build shelters. Let's make tents for you guys. This is great. <laughs> I can feel his excitement. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say because he's terrified. He's masking it with excitement, but he's scared to the core of his being, and a cloud appears. You think he was scared before? A cloud appears. Now see this through a Jewish mindset. I'm going to get into this in a minute. A cloud appears. What do you think of when you think of a cloud? You think of the presence of God, right? You're thinking O-T, N-T, N-E-T. If you're reading your Bible, you're like, this is God, right? And not only that, this cloud overshadows them, and a voice comes from the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. God, in his loving, gentle, fatherly way, says, shut up, Peter. Listen to my son. And I'm not saying that meanly. He's saying, shh, you listen to him. What was Peter having a hard time doing leading up to this moment? Listening to Jesus, trying to rebuke Jesus, trying to come up with a way for Jesus to do what he wants him to do, right? And God's like, shh, listen to him. And what's amazing, it says, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone. No one's with them except Jesus. This is such a fascinating portion of scripture you guys i love it because i like see myself in peter here and i'm looking at jesus and he's he's amazingly glorified he begun his journey to the cross there's a shift in the middle of mark chapter 8 where the whole message is no longer jesus proclaiming the the day of the lord that salvation has come in galilee now he's making his way towards jerusalem we're moving towards the end of the story and it's going to take us a little while to get there but jesus is beginning the road to the cross here And that's why in the middle of Mark chapter 8, there's that shift that I read to you where he starts to explain to them what's about to happen. Here's what's coming. And he's moving towards Jerusalem, towards the fate of suffering and resurrection victory that the Father had sent him for. Confirmation of his mission and his direction is given here on the Mount of Transfiguration as Moses and Elijah appear to him. When these two great figures... Men whom God has used powerfully in Scripture met with Jesus. It meant that the greatest of the lawgivers, Moses, and the greatest of the prophets, as the Jewish people would consider him, Elijah, were standing with Jesus and saying, go on. Keep going. You're doing the right thing. It meant that they saw in Jesus the consummation of all that they had dreamed of in the past. All that the Lord had revealed to them, all that God had spoken to them, they're standing there with Jesus saying, you're doing it. Here's our full encouragement. You are the one. It meant they saw in him all that history had longed for and hoped for and looked forward to. This is a moment of affirmation that Jesus is doing things perfectly well before the Father. And as the Father speaks that over him, that's like your final confirmation. You have the two witnesses there saying, you are fulfilling the scriptures. And the Father speaks out and says, this is my beloved son. Now listen to him. 
He's doing it right. Peter, not knowing what to say, because him and the bros are just scared. He gets caught up in the moment. He just yells it out. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's build some shelters. Much like us, even when we see the Lord do something really powerful, we can seek to seize the moment. We want to control it. We want to harness it. You know, like when God does something powerful in a church service? We want to find a way to bottle it up and use it whenever we want to. The Lord can do something really powerful in church and be like, how do we just keep that going? How do we keep that together? How do we create that atmosphere so that this can be every Sunday? And that's what Peter's doing. Let's stay here. This is Messiah stuff. This is more like it, right? We want to hang on to it. Say something important about it. But as is often the case, sometimes when we're terrified or blown away even at the glory of God, maybe a little both, we should just wait in silence and see what Jesus does. You'll know when it's time to speak. Peter knew when it was time to speak later on. But sometimes we should just wait. Sit in silence and see what the Lord does. I wish I had remained in silence many times in the past. I can't count them. Times I wish I just kept quiet and let the Lord do what he was going to do and participated in that rather than trying to be significant within it. It encourages me that Jesus loves Peter so much and is so patient with him throughout the Gospels because I see in that his patience with me. There's another thought that comes to mind with Peter's words here. Rather than all that death and Jerusalem talk that Jesus has been talking about, why not just stay here forever? Let's stay in this glorified space like, now this is it. Let's just forget all that suffering bit, Jesus, and let's just stay on the mountaintop experience. Youth kids at camp, I'm talking to you. Sometimes we want to stay on the mountaintop experience. We want to stay in that place. And I was even talking with a couple of them this morning. I was like, don't you wish we were still at camp? It was so much fun. And a part of me is like, I was dying. But like, there's a part of me that loves being there. I just love being there with them. But we can't stay there forever. And clearly that that wasn't the will of Christ. Clearly this is a powerful demonstration of his power. And I think that Peter was thinking in this moment, this is what the Messiah ought to look like. Even Elijah and Moses are here. Lord, let's stay here on the mountaintop moment forever. And as Peter's saying those words, the Shekinah glory descends. If you're familiar with that term, it's the cloud of God's glory. It's the cloud that you read about throughout the journey of the Israelites from Egypt in Exodus. This is the cloud that filled the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's the cloud of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 10. There's a slide for this one, Trevor, in case anyone wants to see these. It's the cloud that receives Jesus into heaven in Acts 1. And the cloud of glory he'll return with as he teaches us in Luke 21. Yeah, it's that cloud. And as he's up there talking, as Peter's trying to solidify or say something significant, this cloud descends and the father speaks and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. When you think about Peter's attempted rebuke of Jesus or misguided attempts um, to tell Jesus what to do, we think about how we try and tell Jesus what we need, where we should stay, how our lives ought to work, what our neighborhood should be like, the experience of our kids in their schools. 
I want you to remember something really important because I need to hear this often. We need to listen to Jesus and do what he says. We need to remember Christ in all aspects of our lives because we can get so caught up in thinking that we need to jump into a situation and change that situation. And here's the thing. You know when the Lord calls you to do something, but oftentimes I think we're acting on our religious impulses, not on spirit-led impulses. And we need to know the difference. What does Jesus say? What's he calling me to do? It's not a call to inaction. It's a call to action the right way. It's a call to obedience. And oftentimes we fight to hold on to the mountaintop experiences or, experiences or even live for the next one when we're not having one. You ever live for the next moment, not the one you're in? It's always that things that, I'm about to go on vacation, by the way, guys. I'm just throwing this out there. <laughs> I'm sitting in Convictionville right now. Because we act that way, like, I just got to get through one more day. I got to preach one more sermon that's not heretical. I got to play one more song without breaking a string. You know, we start thinking, why? Because I got to get to that thing over there. You don't do that. This is just just me. Right? I got to get to the next thing. Be present in the moment for the purposes of God. Be present in the moment that you're in. Stop thinking about lunch. I know it's 11. And you're already going, oh, here goes Mike. He's over again. No, listen. Stop thinking about lunch. Why does God have you here right now with his word open to Mark chapter 9? Why does he have you here? What are you here for? Stop thinking about the next thing and be present right here. And think about how Jesus planned these moments for you to be here right now. According to God's will, you are present here this morning. You are on this earth at this time. You didn't get born into the wrong generation. God wasn't like pouring people into a generation. Oh no, I put them over there. Oh well. It doesn't work like that. You were here for a reason. You've been here and are present here because God has called you to here. And I love what Spurgeon says. It is a better thing for a man to live near to Christ and to enjoy his presence than it would be for him to be overshadowed with a bright cloud and to hear the divine father speaking or himself speaking out of it. How does that pertain to the situation? Because we often think that it would be better if God was doing thus. If God would just... If I could just, if he would then, what's he doing right now that you're missing? What is the work of the Spirit in the world and in your lives right now that you should be participating in? It's not about what he should do or will do next. It's about what he is doing now. Are we actively taking part of it? Are we surrendered or are we looking for the moment to be either lasting forever or not lasting forever or switching to the next thing it's better thing for a man to live near to christ to enjoy his presence than it would be for him to be overshadowed with this cloud to hear the divine father himself speaking out of it very cool stuff i would love that if God like descended a cloud into this room and just spoke, we'd all be like, oh, that would be so powerful. More powerful than what the Lord's doing right now. More significant than what he's doing right now. If we believe so, we greatly misunderstand him. Seek for God in the quiet moments. 
Seek for God in the difficult moments. He is powerfully present there. And as quickly as it started, they're alone. Just like that. They look around and it's just Jesus. What a statement. Just Jesus. Here I sit in my living room with my Bible open. It's just me and my Bible. It's just Jesus. It's just God's written word sitting on your lap. It's just the creator of the universe available for you to pray to anytime you want. It's just a salvation that's been given to you freely by grace, not by works. You can't boast. Think about the lack of gratitude that we carry around with us day by day. Just Jesus. We're standing there with God in human flesh. We're sitting here with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, church. And as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus gives them instruction in verse 9. He orders them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Remember this. They just saw Moses and Elijah, not from their time period, right? They just had the Shekinah glory come down and God speak himself, the Father. And they had Jesus transfigured before them. Wouldn't you think this would be a moment of great understanding? Like, like perfect clarity. I just saw God in a way I've never seen, heard, or experienced him before, right? Verse 10, they kept this word, risen from the dead to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. What did they experience? What did Peter, James, and John experience coming down from the mountain? Confusion. (laughs) That cracks me up because we think about all these big and powerful things we want God to do He does these big and powerful things in the disciples' lives, and what does it produce? Confusion. Hmm. Rise from the dead. I heard that before. (laughs) The misunderstandings of the three disciples present continue to exist even after they witness the glory of Jesus, the presence of the law and the prophets through Moses and Elijah and the voice of the Father. They still didn't understand what Messiahship meant. They still weren't listening. They still weren't getting it. He had told them this before. If you think that all you need is to see the glory of God through a demonstration of his power by miraculous healing, a descending cloud of glory, an earth-shattering vocal declaration of his presence, listen to me. The greatest declaration of God's love is the cross upon which Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, and the greatest declaration of victory is his resurrection from the dead. That is the greatest declaration of his love and of his victory. And if we will not receive that, we will not experience his power in this life. Amen? If we cannot receive that and understand that, we will not understand all of the deep mysteries of God. It starts very simply and very basically, and Jesus tells them straight up facts, and they cannot grasp it. Why? Because in all the power and in all the bigness and the amazingness of God, he has given them a simple truth that they do not receive. And I fear for this over the church, that there are simple truths that he has given to us to walk with him, to love him, to love our neighbor, to obey him, and we're so busy trying to have a Christian experience that we're not walking in obedience. 
What do you want more? Like, well, I just thought that Jesus would fix all my problems. Depends on what you define as a problem, doesn't it? What's a problem? Do you want him to make your life easy? Because he said in chapter 8, if anyone wants to come after me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross. He already said you are supposed to share in his suffering. He, he told us that the expectation was to deny our own desires and to join him on death row. The disciples reveal their confusion in verse 11 because they misunderstand Messiahship. They ask him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're confused. I think this is a really honest question. Well, you're here. Where's Elijah? Right? Elijah does come first, Jesus says, and restores all things. Why then is it written? I like Jesus' counter question. It's beautiful. Why then is is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He asked them a question. Why are you focused on this and not the parts of Scripture that I've been drawing your attention to? That the Messiah needs to suffer. That that's part of Messiahship. Is I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it was written about him. Jesus both answers their question and directs their attention to the parts of Messiahship that they traditionally don't embrace, that being the suffering and contempt promised the Son of Man when he comes. Because of rabbinic teaching of their time, if you actually look at what the rabbis were teaching in this time period, the disciples expected Elijah to come. This was the expectation of the people. He would precede the Messiah in in most of the teachings by a few days, like three days. And he had three messages that he would declare, one on each day. And they were all messages that were like a call to this coming king who's going to conquer and give them victory. This is what the rabbis would teach. They would herald the final consummation, which would usher in the Messiah's victorious kingdom, and everyone would be like, yeah, it's what you see play out later on the Palm Sunday road. That was their expectation. They expected Elijah to come and herald this. The Messiah would come. He would take over. But Jesus gives them clarity. Elijah has come. All right, church scholars, who was Elijah in this context? There you go. Who said that? Courtney, good job. John the Baptist. Clarified throughout Scripture and the Gospels that this is John the Baptist who did come and herald the coming of the Messiah and just as the world would treat the Son of Man with contempt and cause him to suffer and put him to death, so too John the Baptist was murdered by Herod for speaking the truth of God. Uh Uh-oh. We have the wrong kind of association. See, the culture was teaching them that Elijah would come and declare and proclaim and then this Messiah would come in and it's all smooth sailing from there. And Jesus says, you've got it all wrong because you're leaving out parts of the Bible. Here's what the scripture says. Elijah has come and Jesus says they treated him the way that they chose to treat him. They put him to death. And Jesus reveals to them that was a forewarning and a foreshadowing of what they were about to do to him. John was the picture of a man who followed the call of Christ that we read in Mark 8, 34 and 35. He denied himself. He took up his cross and he followed Jesus by fulfilling the calling given to him. Because when Christ calls someone, he bids them to come and die. He's not asking you to come and receive glory and honor in this life. 
He promises us that there, there is going to be glory and honor for Him as we celebrate His kingship in heaven. He bids us to come, die to our flesh, our desires, our agenda, our prosperity to humble ourselves and sit at the table with gratitude, recognizing that I can sit at the end of that table and let him put me where he wants me because I'm at the table. You ever think about that? I know I've talked about this a lot lately, but like that's such a powerful picture. When Jesus is talking about those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And he says, so when you show up at a banquet and you show up at this person's invitation at their table, he's like, don't go take the seat closest to the front, which is the seat of honor. He says, sit at the end of the table. And then when the master says, why are you sitting there? Come on up here. I want you to sit here. See, when you humble yourself, he'll exalt you to the place where you belong, not exalt you above anybody. He's going to lift you up to the place where you belong and place you there. That's why, the Jesus, that's why Jesus was given the name that's above all other names. Because God has highly exalted him. Guys, think about this. Isn't it a blessing just to be at the table? Isn't it an overwhelming privilege just to be at the table? I'll sit wherever there's space at the end. I just want to be at the table with Jesus. I just want to be at that banquet. And because of his grace, we get to be there. The Mount of Transfiguration was this beautiful demonstration of Jesus' holiness and power, but the disciples left confused because only the cross and resurrection could teach them the lesson that they needed to learn. Did you catch that? All the powerful demonstrations of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're still confused. They still can't process what's going on because the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that's going to transform them. They're going to be given new life. They're going to be given a new heart. The cross and resurrection is going to give them the faith they need to glorify God with their lives. That's why the gospel message spread so quickly because these men saw their Savior die and rise from the dead And what is Jesus trying to get them to look at? What is he trying to get them to understand and to focus upon? That we need to share in his suffering. That we need to come alongside him because that is where, when we partner with Christ and we're unashamed of who he is, that's where we truly understand him. Is sharing in his suffering. The greatest declaration of God's love is the cross. The greatest declaration of victory is his resurrection from the dead. You can find no greater. Isn't that what baptism pictures for us? When you're baptized, the old man goes into the water and dies, and you're resurrected and raised up in the newness of life in Christ. That's why we're commanded in Scripture to be baptized. Baptism is a physical demonstration of the spiritual reality in our lives every follower of Jesus, that we have died, denied ourselves, gone to the cross, and that he has raised us up in that newness of life, that resurrection life. We're physically declaring that we're not ashamed of him, we're not ashamed of his suffering, that we're willing to suffer the shame and contempt of our Lord, to stand alongside him and say, this is my Lord and my Savior, do your worst, but I'm with him. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. To call people, to a salvation that's more significant 
than anything that can be gained in this world for what will it profit us if we gain the whole world and lose our souls? I have a little surprise for you. Beauty of having a baptismal in the church. <laughs> Thank you, First Baptist. As I was studying yesterday, I felt very strongly. I've been wrong before. I don't think it was something that I ate. But I felt very strongly like there's some here this morning that need to be baptized. That you've given your life to Jesus, but you need to come up and you need to get in the water. And you need to be baptized in front of this congregation this morning and demonstrate that the old man has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That you are a new creation and that by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his death there and his resurrection on the third day, that you are alive and that you are going to be with him in his glory. Amen? I think there's some here this morning that need to be baptized. I'm gonna look down so I don't make like direct eye contact. And there's probably some here that I'm not sure about, that I'm not aware of. You've given your life to Jesus and you've not been baptized. Let me just challenge you because you're gonna have some time. Let me give you a little bit of time this morning. Let me challenge you with this. You know in your heart already what you need to do. You know in your heart already that you've given your life to him and that you haven't for some reason gotten in the water and demonstrated that newness of life physically. And I just want to challenge you to take that step this morning and let us celebrate that with you. Allow the church to celebrate what God has done in your life by physically showing them that you've been born again. If there's some here this morning that need to be baptized, here's what we're going to do. Really simple. We're going to take communion. And we're going to worship for a while. At any point during communion in that worship, if you want to be baptized, I want you to come sit in this front pew right here. And after we get done worshiping, we can go in the back. The worship will continue playing and we're going to baptize you right here this morning. I want you to consider whether you should do this this morning or not. And ask the Lord what's holding you back if you haven't. Communion, as we prepare to take this, all of the people who are going to um, serve communion, come forward, please. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 is Paul's reminder of what happened that night when Jesus was betrayed. We take communion as often as we take it in remembrance of the death of Jesus for our sake. It's a celebration it's an occasion of joy for us as a church. And Paul calls us to examine ourselves. And he says this, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're demonstrating that I've been washed by the blood of Jesus, that I'm bound to the body of Christ through this family meal that we share together. And worship team, would you come up? Paul goes on in that passage to encourage believers to examine ourselves when we take it. And so our communion should come with confession. 
Communion should be a part of our confession to God that we have fallen short. And we need to remember what it says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no better time than now to confess your sin to the Lord and then take communion and remember that he has died in your place. That your guilt and your sin was nailed to him on the cross. And that because of that, because of his resurrection, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I want to encourage you guys to take a few moments to confess sin. As communion's being distributed, ask for forgiveness and restoration. And then hold on to those elements. We'll take them together. We'll worship. And I just want to challenge you, if you have not been baptized, let's do it this morning. Let's celebrate resurrection life. It's funny, the church, we kind of like, parcel out things a lot of times well you can't do like all these things in one morning oh yes we can we're gonna get all done right here this morning don't worry i'll get you to lunch on time the lord's supper is an occasion of joy for the christian community reconciled in our hearts with god and the body we receive the gift of the body and blood of jesus christ and receiving that we receive forgiveness new life and restoration jesus we pray this morning that you would prepare our hearts as we go into a time of receiving communion in remembrance of you lord we we just thank you jesus you're so much far beyond and above our comprehension and yet, Lord, so many times we miss the simple things that you're speaking to our hearts, and I ask that you dial down the noise in our hearts and our minds right now. And as we confess sin, Lord, make us aware of it. God, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, help us to perceive our unintentional thoughts, our unintentional sin. And Lord, don't let the sins we're aware of rule us. We desire for the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts to be acceptable to you. For you are our Lord, you are our rock, you are our redeemer. And as we prepare to take communion, may you do the work in our hearts that's needed so that we can receive this, Lord, in remembrance of you, in gratitude and in joy, because we serve a risen Savior who died in our place. For whatever it is that you desire to do here this morning, stir the right hearts. And Lord, I pray over those who I, I really believe are being called to be baptized this morning. Lord, stir them by your spirit. If I'm mistaken, that's okay, Lord. Just do what you want to do. But Lord, if this is something you're doing, I want to, I just want to ask that you would invite them forward. You would encourage them forward to stand with you, to not be ashamed, to join you through denial of self, taking up the cross and following you. Prepare our hearts to receive communion. Prepare the hearts who you're calling forward to be baptized this morning. We ask in Jesus' name.